Well, as we turn to the Word of God, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Acts 17. Acts 17 for this message entitled, Turn to God Before It's Too Late. Our text this morning is Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 34, which is a sermon the Apostle Paul preached in Athens to people who worshipped every god except for the one true and living God. For the sake of context, I want to begin by reading starting in verse 16 all the way through verse 34. So when you're there, follow along as I read. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is, uh, Timothy and Silas, while he was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as your own poets have said, for we also are his children." Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. 
So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. I wonder what God or gods do you worship? For some, that might be an easy question to answer. I worship the God of the Bible, most of us would say. I worship the God of Israel, religious Jews would say. I worship Allah, Muslims would say. I worship Brahman, the eternal one being of all, Hindus might say. Other religions, of course, have their gods or goddesses with names and personalities. For others, the question of what god or gods do you worship is harder to answer. In fact, for some, it doesn't even compute. Uh, For Buddhists or New Age spiritualists who don't view God as an independent being, they essentially worship themselves. Atheists, of course, would reject the notion that there is such a God. They, too, end up worshiping themselves. Agnostics don't want to be so foolish as to say that they know there's no God, and yet their apathy and their false humility leads them to end up worshiping themselves. In the most general terms, your God is your ultimate source of meaning and identity and purpose. Your God is where you look in times for help in times of trouble. Your, your God is where you look for protection in times of danger. Your God is your ultimate provider of food and clothing and shelter and work and children and success and money. Your God is where you ultimately turn where you have nowhere else to turn. Or sometimes your God is the first place where you turn. In our society, we might see some traditional idols around, but for the most part, our society bows down to idols that look different. Some worship the God of comfort, and they bow down to the idols of drugs and alcohol. Those who worship success bow down to idols that look like cars or houses or possessions that they trust will supply their happiness. Others bow down to the idol of relationships, believing that if they have enough friends or the right partner, they will find fulfillment. Still others bow down to pleasure, engaging in all kinds of rituals from immorality to thrill-seeking activities that they think will ultimately bring them satisfaction. Power, prestige, health, Sports and other idols are rampant in our society. We live for these things. We engage in all kinds of rituals as acts of worship to satisfy these gods. We give them money so that they will bless us. We get angry when our gods are insulted. And we get depressed when they fail us. Now, we don't think of ourselves as overly religious. Some might deny religiosity altogether. 
But the truth is, every person is a priest in his or her own religion. Paul Tripp said it well, an idol of the heart is anything that rules me other than God. As worshiping beings, human beings are all, always worship someone or something. This is not a situation where some people worship and some people don't. If God isn't ruling my heart, he says, someone or something will. It is the way we were made, unquote. And so I ask again, what God or gods do you worship? Whatever the answer is, hear this. If your God is not the one true and living God, the God who revealed himself through the prophets of old as recorded in the Bible, and the one who spoke through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, then your God is no better than the gods that are made of gold and silver and stone. And of those gods, Psalm 115 says, as we read, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And then it says, those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Those who worship false gods degenerate into blind, deaf, and mute people who will ultimately be destroyed in the judgment. This sermon here in Acts 17 is recorded for people like us. It calls us to come to grips with our false conceptions of God and to know the truth about God. And it tells us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very fact that proves not only who the true God is, but that He will judge us for our idolatry. There is no greater truth that we can give our attention to than this. So I call upon each of us to sit up and to pay attention to what God's Word has to say. Well, in verses 16 to 21 of Acts 17, we get the context of Paul's sermon He's in Athens, that great city, which is the apex of philosophical, religious, and cultural life in the ancient times. Centuries earlier, it was the home of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, as well as the birthplace of Epicurean and Stoic philosophy. The Rome conquered Athens in 146 BC. They gave Athens special permission to maintain its identity and heritage as the center of Greek culture. Athens was to philosophy and religion what Hollywood is to movies or what Nashville is to country music. This explains why in verse 16, Paul observed that the city was full of idols. In fact, you could translate that the city was submerged in idols. Now, these idols were not all of the same deity. They were of virtually every deity. And then in the mix of hundreds of religions where were the Epicureans, whose God was not a divine being, but rather pleasure. Some lived in the constant pursuit of pleasure, and others simply sought to remove pain and suffering and trouble from life. 
Then there were the Stoics who rejected polytheism, the worship of many gods, and instead embraced pantheism, that everything is God. And they sought to live in tune with nature, practicing self-discipline. Verse 18 then tells us that the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers were the main ones that Paul interacted with in the marketplace. And it was Paul's proclamation of the gospel, the the person and work of Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection that raised their eyebrows and drew their interest and curiosity. So they took Paul to the Areopagus, which was a place where philosophies and religions were formerly assessed and discussed. And they said to him, as you can see in verse 19 and 20, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. We want to know this new teaching and we want to know what these things mean. Paul's response then is this sermon transcribed for us in verses 22 to 34. Using the language that these people used in their request, we can divide Paul's sermon into two main points. Know the true God and know what He demands. They wanted to know what this teaching is and what it means. Here it is. Know the true God and know what He demands demands. Consider the first. Know the true God. Look again at verses 22 and 23. So Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Records indicate that it was actually against the rules of the Areopagus to pander to your audience. So when Paul says that they are very religious in all respects, he's not paying them a compliment. In fact, this is more tongue-in-cheek, if not outright offensive. The preponderance of idols may have been a demonstration of their religious tolerance, but it also conveyed a lack of conviction in that environment, to point out their religiosity is to point out how undevoted they were to any particular religion. Obviously, that wouldn't apply to every individual, as some would have been focused on their own particular God. But it is to say that as a culture, they lacked the conviction to reject any religion or philosophy out of fear that they might anger a God that they did not know. And that was proven by that very altar that Paul found with the inscription to an unknown God. It seems they believed that whatever that God was would overlook their ignorance if they at least acknowledged it. Interestingly, ancient records also affirm outside of Scripture that there were multiple altars to multiple unknown gods. So this was not the only one. As a society of both polytheists and pantheists, they were driven by fear and ignorance. Every religion makes its claim. Every philosopher spouts their ideas. Who's to say who's right? Can anyone declare to have definitive knowledge of God and declare that all other religions or philosophies are wrong? 
well, the Athenians and our culture today would say, yes, excuse me, no, there is no definitive knowledge of God. There, there is no one who can declare other views as wrong. I have my truth. You have your truth. And all of our truths can be accepted as equally valid. Paul here in this sermon says the opposite. Yes, there is definitive knowledge of God, and God himself declares all other views to be wrong. Notice how he says there at the end of verse 23, Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. In saying this, Paul does not equate the the true God with the unknown God of this altar as if he can just fill in the gaps of their understanding so that they can carve a new label on the altar. Grammatically, the words what you worship does not refer to that unknown God, but rather to the objects of their worship. And he says their worship is ignorant. It lacks substance. It isn't based on reality. And it is that ignorance that he's about to dismantle by proclaiming the one true and living God. Now, specifically, what he declares about God in the following verses is that God reigns, God sustains, and God ordains. God reigns, God sustains, and God ordains. He proclaims both the transcendence of God, that God is above and outside of His creation, and He proclaims the imminence of God, that God is involved in His creation. And we'll see that even though Paul does not quote Scripture explicitly in this sermon, everything he says is based in Scripture. Look at verse 24 to see that God reigns. He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. As Paul looked around at the city full of idols and temples and altars, he declares that the true God does not dwell in temple made with hands. He is not contained by time and space such that he, can, he must take up residence in one place or another as though he can be confined to a place where people have to come visit him. No, the true God cannot be controlled by mankind. Why is that? Well, he tells us because he made the world and all things in it. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made the earth on which we dwell, the sun and the moon that give their light. He made the uncountable galaxies, each with their billions of stars and planets in the universe. Technology has only made us smaller and smaller and smaller in the vastness of the universe. How silly it is to think that the God who made the universe could be contained in one galaxy and on one planet and on one continent and in one city and in one temple. He cannot. Now the Lord says in Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is the house you could build for me? And where is the place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus, all these things came to be. Now someone might say, didn't the Lord instruct the Jews to build him the tabernacle? 
And then later, didn't Solomon build a temple for the Lord? Yes. But even Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, said this, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. The temple and the tabernacle were the center of Israel's worship, not because God had boundaries of his presence, but because the people needed boundaries lest they devolve into self-defined religion. Note, though, how Paul moves from the the fact that God is creator into the implication of that, where he says in verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. As creator, God is the rightful sovereign of his creation. He alone has the intellectual and the property rights to creation. He made it, so it belongs to him. And he alone has the ownership and the authority to rule according to his will. In short, he reigns. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Psalm 89 says, The heavens are yours and the earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. The north and the south, you created them. Everything belongs to God and He reigns over everything. Isaiah 45 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. My friends, let there be no mistake about who is in charge of everything. The Lord reigns, it says in Psalm 93. The Lord reigns, it says in Psalm 96. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, Psalm 97 says. The earth, the Lord reigns, let the earth tremble, let the peoples tremble, it says in Psalm 99. There is no God of war. There is no God of rain. There is no God of fertility. There is no God of the harvest. There is only one true and living God who reigns over all. Look at verse 25 then to see that not only God reigns, but He sustains. Paul says, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. The idols of men need to be served. Perhaps the most comical example is Dagon, the god of the Philistines, who When the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, they put it in the temple of Dagon, and they came back the next morning, and Dagon had fallen down before the Lord. So they had to come in and put him back up. The next day, he fell down again, and this time his head and his arms had been broken off. He had hands and he had a head, but he needed his followers to use their hands to put him up. Idols have mouths, but they cannot eat. So they need their followers to bring to them food and then eat it themselves or throw it away. Idols have hands and feet, but they cannot move. So they need their worshipers to come visit them and to move them around and to perform maintenance on them. Not true of God. The true God does not need anything. He does not need to be served. 
He does not need to be fed. He doesn't need to be dusted off or picked up and moved around. As the infinite God, there is nothing in this finite, temporary world that He needs. In Psalm 50, the Lord declares, I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? His point in that psalm is that the sacrifices were, were not for the purpose of feeding him, but they were for the purpose of demonstrating the faithfulness and obedience and thanksgiving of his worshipers. The true God who transcends creation does not need anything from His creation. On the other hand, He is the one who sustains His creation. It says, He Himself gives to all life, all people, life and breath and all things. The Scripture says that the very fabric of the universe is upheld by the power of God. Hebrews 1-2 says that the Son of God upholds all things by the word of His power. It is true that the Lord created the natural laws of the universe that direct the course of life and nature, but it is His will that sustains and perpetuates those laws. But the day will come when it will be His will to suspend those laws and unravel those laws, and the heaven and earth will be destroyed. And in its place, He will create a new heaven and a new earth with different laws as indicated by the fact that in the eternal state where God dwells with His people, there will be no sun and there will be no moon. So God sustains the universe. And He also sustains life. Speaking of all creatures, Psalm 104 says, they all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face and they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And elsewhere he said, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. This is just a small sampling of scripture that declares to us that God is the source of life, and he gives to all life and breath and all things. Your heart beats, not by your will, but by God's will. Your lungs have been inhaling and exhaling today, not because you are controlling them, but because God is sustaining them. All that you have is from Him. Whatever you've accomplished, whatever you've accumulated, whatever health you have, you cannot do anything on your own. God is sustaining your life moment by moment. So don't ever think, That God needs something from you. Don't ever think that you've done something for God that now He owes you. You owe God everything because He sustains you. Romans 11, 34-36 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that He should be His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For 
from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. My friends, know that the true God reigns, the true God sustains, and third, he ordains. Look at verses 26 to 28. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and their boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. As the Lord of heaven and earth, he not only sustains his creation, but he ordains the movements of mankind and the purpose for which people exist. Note how Paul unapologetically declares the straightforward understanding of Genesis by saying that God created from one man every nation of mankind. This stands in contrast not only to the modern theory of evolution, but also to the ancient stories of how mankind came to be. The Greeks, like many other people groups of throughout history, were racist, and they believed themselves to be a superior race to all the barbarians, which was anyone who wasn't Greek. But here Paul declares that there is one human race because we all come from one and the same man, Adam, whom God created. And then it, he, it says he made them to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. When Noah and his family came out of the ark, in Genesis 9, they were given the same mandate that Adam and Eve were. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in Genesis 11, we learn that as the people multiplied, they disobeyed God's command and they all stayed in one place. So the scripture says the Lord confused their language. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So God not only ordains the, the spread and the location of mankind, He also ordains the rise and fall of nations. In Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream which the prophet Daniel interpreted as the Lord's future plans for nations. And in that prophecy, the Lord revealed and prophesied the rise and fall of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Before those kingdoms ever existed, they were ordained by God. In fact, it's this very reality that distinguishes God from every false God. In Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 11, the Lord says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things that have not been done saying, my purpose will stand, I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. And there he's speaking about his plans for the nations. Now, for what purpose did God plan and ordain the history of men? Paul says there in verse 27, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. Earlier we saw the transcendence of God, that He is above and outside of His creation. Here we see the imminence of God, that He is involved with His creation such that we can search Him out and even find Him. 
The Lord has made Himself known to all mankind. Romans 1 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they, all people, are without excuse. We instinctively know that we are creatures. And therefore, there must be a Creator. It's impossible that in this vast and beautiful and complex material universe so finely tuned for humanity to live and observe and study, it's impossible that it all came about by accident. Though God revealed Himself to Adam and Eve and their descendants, even walking and talking with them, yet they rejected Him. And ever since, mankind has been groping around in the darkness looking for a God that they were willing to accept, trying to find meaning and purpose beyond themselves. But all the while, the, the Creator, the one true and living God, has had an open invitation to come back to Him. The prophet Isaiah called out, Seek the Lord while He might be found. Call upon Him while He is near. The Lord Himself says, Turn to Me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. God ordains the movements and the purpose of mankind. He doesn't exist for us. We exist for Him. Notice then what Paul says in verse 28. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. The New American Standard Translation doesn't show it, but there's actually two quotes here. The first is, for in Him we live and move and have our being. The second is, for we also are His children. The first uh, quote is from a poem which Paul also quotes from in Titus 1, which many of you remember. Paul says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Same poem. That poem has been attributed to Epimenides, the Cretan. The second quote is by Aratus, a poet from Cilicia, the same area that Paul himself had grown up in. Both of those poets lived hundreds of years earlier, so by this point they were classics among the Greeks. Now those poems were originally written about Zeus. So Paul is not quoting them because he's using them to support his case of who God is, but rather he's demonstrating that mankind has indeed searched for God under the presumption that we are not self-made and that we're not the accident of natural forces, but rather we are the product of creation. And in that sense, we are God's children. And so as such, we are dependent on our Creator for everything. My friends, these are truths about God that you need to know. And which Paul declares. That God reigns, God sustains, and God ordains. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the Lord of all. He is the supplier of all of our needs. And He made you to seek Him. So we turn the corner then from know the true God to the second main point, know what God demands. It's not enough to know these truths about God. These truths have implications. They place demands on our life. 
In this public declaration of the true God, Paul gives three demands from God. First, believe rightly about Him. Second, turn to God. And third, prepare for judgment. Know God rightly, turn to God, and prepare for judgment. Consider the first, know God rightly. Look at verse 29. He says, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Since this is who God is, the God that Paul proclaims, and since we are his children, we are obligated to think rightly about him. And specifically what Paul highlights here is that if God is the transcendent creator of everything, and if we are the products of His creation, it is insanity to think that the very nature of God can be reflected in gold and silver or stone. Or that any creation, anything in creation, captures the essence of God. In fact, the first two of the Ten Commandments are these. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, nor any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. Why is it important to God that we not create any physical representation of Him? It's because to do so is to misrepresent Him. God is spirit, Scripture says, and so anything that stands as a visible representation of Him, stands as a false representation of Him. Now, in our pluralistic society, of course, people say that it doesn't matter what you think about God. It doesn't matter who your God is as long as you're sincere. That's all God cares about, they say. Really? Our society can't stand misgendering someone or using the wrong pronouns, and they think that the God of the universe doesn't care what you believe about Him? God does care what you think about Him. To think wrongly about God is to diminish His glory and majesty. It is in reality to deny His existence and put in His place a false God that does not exist. But God wants you to know Him rightly. And He's given you His Word, the Bible, so that you would know Him rightly. Starting in May, that's what we're going to study, how God reveals Himself to us in His Word. Know God rightly. Consider the second demand that God places on our lives. Turn to God. Turn to God. Look at verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men, that all people everywhere should repent. The word repent means to turn. It specifically means to change your mind, to turn your thinking. And clearly what all people are commanded by God to do here is to repent of their wrong thoughts about God. We are to reject all false ideas about God and embrace the truth about God. Notice, though, that Paul says that God overlooked the times of ignorance. This is a brief way of saying that for much of history, as the Lord's plans for mankind unfolded, His interaction with mankind was focused on His chosen people Israel. They were to be a city on a hill shining forth the glory of God so that the peoples and the nations would be attracted to God. 
But they failed to rightly worship and serve God. And in fact, they, they did the opposite and misrepresented God to the nations by portraying God as unworthy to be worshipped. They actually preferred the false gods made of gold and stone of the nations. And they exchanged the true God for those. So the world was left without witness to the true God, and therefore they were ignorant of Him. But that has changed. God Himself has created a new people group, the church whom he has commissioned not to be a city on a hill to which the nations are drawn, but to be ambassadors to go throughout the world proclaiming the glory of God. And that's what Paul is doing here in Athens. Now, having heard the testimony of the true God from Paul's lips, the Athenians, and now you as well, are commanded by God to repent of your idolatry. And to turn to the God who made you, who sustains you, and who ordains all of the details of your life. My friends, this is not a suggestion. This is not a recommendation. This is not a subjective truth claim to be set aside other truth claims. This is a command. The word declaring most often is translated command or order. You're ordered by God to turn to Him. Now, why should you obey this command? Well, it's because of the third demand that God places on your life, and that is to prepare for judgment. Look again at verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. All people everywhere should repent because God will judge the world in righteousness. Here we see that the true God is righteous. It is His nature to do what is right and what is just. And a righteous and just God cannot overlook wrongs and injustices forever. Now, He might overlook for a time out of an exercise of patience, but the day is coming when His justice will be executed on the earth. And everyone who does not turn from their idols to God will find themselves standing before the judge who knows every thought and every word and every deed. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Now notice there in verse 31, that Paul does not just say that judgment is coming. He says God has fixed a day. That is to say there is a day on God's calendar that is marked and circled as the day of judgment. All history is moving toward that day and no one can escape that day. Every second that passes by is one second closer to the day of judgment. Every day that you wake up is a day that you are one day closer to the day of judgment. As sure as the sun rises and falls, you are moving closer and closer to judgment. My friends, there will be no rescheduling of that day. There will be no delay of that day. The day is fixed. It is certain. It's not penciled in. It's carved in. 
You won't sleep through your alarm that day and you can't call in sick on that day. If you do not turn to God, His angels on that day will arraign you and make you stand before Him with no defense. There will be no jury to which you can appeal on that day. There will be no discovery process because in the infinite mind of God, He has recorded everything you've ever thought, every word you've ever said, and every deed you'd ever done. And you will be judged precisely, accurately, and summarily according to the fullest extent of the law of God. My friend, judgment is coming. And there's only one way you can escape it. Turn to God. Turn to God today. Cast aside your false thoughts about God. Reject the idea that He doesn't exist or that some God you've invented in your mind does exist in His place. Discard the notion that there is no judgment coming and that this life is all there is. Well, what if this life is all there is, someone might say. What if this really isn't the true God? And what if you're just making this up? Who's to say what religion is right and all the rest are wrong? Well, that's a good question. That is an important question. Here's the answer. Look again at verse 31. Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. You can be certain that judgment is coming because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is proof that God is Himself the true and living God. Some religions teach that after death comes annihilation. You simply cease to exist. Here's the problem. People have died. And their bodies have decayed. And then they came back to life. In John 11, Jesus raised Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. Jesus Himself was raised three days after His death. If an annihilation was true, no one could be raised from the dead. So clearly, it is false. But most religions teach that there is some kind of afterlife. Whether they teach that you become part of that universal spirit being, or they teach that you are reincarnated into some other being, or they teach some kind of heaven or paradise to which you will go. Most inventors of religion affirm life after death. Here's the problem. None have ever proved it. None have ever died. None have ever been verified to have died. And none have ever raised from the dead declaring that yes, indeed, what they've taught was true. No followers of religious leaders have ever claimed that their leader, or anyone else for that matter, validated their teaching by rising from the dead. Only the God of the Bible, the one true and living God, who has revealed Himself throughout history to mankind by performing miracles and sending prophets and predicting the future, only He has furnished proof to all by raising Jesus from the dead. Now, how does the resurrection of Jesus prove that the God of the Bible is in fact the true God and that judgment is coming? 
well, it's really simple. Throughout the last three years of his life, Jesus taught about God using the Old Testament. His life, death, and resurrection fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. He declared that he himself was the Son of God and thereby claimed to have the very nature of God. And he proclaimed that judgment is coming. More than that, he proclaimed that he himself would be the judge. In John 5.22, Jesus said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. And then He went on to say, And He, gave, he the Father, gave the Son authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Some to a resurrection of life, others to a resurrection of judgment. Had Jesus said those words and then died and then was never heard or seen from, seen or heard from again, we would be right to be skeptical about his words. But that's not what happened. Jesus died and three days later, the father raised him from the dead. And that's important because the true God would not raise a false prophet thereby validating his message. But God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him before mankind, demonstrating his approval of the Son and all that he taught, and showing proof beyond shadow of a doubt that Jesus, everything Jesus said would indeed take place. Jesus will be the judge of all. Then as you look at verses 32 to 34, you see the three responses to Paul's message. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Some mocked. Some were intrigued and wanted to hear more. And some believed. How will you respond today? Will you continue to mock God who this day has told you that you can escape judgment? Will you see this as worthy of your attention and give yourself to study who this God is? Or will you believe? You've heard today and you know the true God. He reigns, He sustains, and He ordains. There is no God like Him. There is no God besides Him. He is your Lord and Creator. You've heard and now know what God demands of your life. You must set aside all of your false ideas about God and embrace and know Him rightly. You must turn from the false gods that you've worshipped, even if it's yourself, and turn to the true God. And you must prepare for the day of judgment. If you have not repented, do it today. Do it now. May it be true of everyone here that description that Paul said of the people of another city, the city of Thessalonica, where he had preached A message like this, perhaps, just weeks before this one. 
And in a letter to them, he reminded them, you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. My friend, would you turn to Christ today if you have not done so before? Would you believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God who came to live a life that you and I could not live perfectly, obeying the Father, living holy and righteously, even in the face of much opposition and the temptation of sin? Would you believe that He gave Himself and was murdered and put to death to bear the sin of all those who would believe? That His infinite, perfect life was a substitute for sinners and that He truly died and therefore was buried and was in the grave for three days. But on the third day, God raised Him from the dead. Would you believe that today? Romans 10 says, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is no doubt in my mind that there are many here who have never turned to You. Maybe they've claimed to believe in You, but they've not really even known who You were. They've feigned obedience in their lives, but their lives really were rebellious against You. There are those who have worshipped other gods, knowingly so, And yet now they are confronted with you, the one true and living God. Would you open their eyes? Would you cause them to see your glory and your majesty? Would would you cause them to know that you are worthy to be worshipped, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords? Would you cause us who have been granted that gift of repentance, who do worship you, who do know you, cause us to be faithful ambassadors, to proclaim you, the one true and living God, to the world. Let us do that in our own lives, in those spheres in which you've placed us. And would you cause us to come together and do that throughout the world? If you're here and you do not know Christ, you can talk to God in your heart. You can turn to Him simply by acknowledging the truth of what you've heard. You can affirm who the true and living God is. That He made you. That He sustains you. That He's in control of your life. You can affirm that you have worshipped false gods. But that you believe and that you trust now the true and living God. You can believe in Jesus who gave Himself that you might be forgiven of your sin and your idolatry. You can give yourself to Him and ask Him to help you to learn what it means to worship Him. Lord, may this be a day where many can point to as the day that they turned 
from idols to the true God. For the sake of Christ we pray. Amen.